The call to worship this morning is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift up his head. The Old Testament reading is found in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 to 28. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. The New Testament reading is from John 12, 20 to 23. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, good to be back amongst you, alive and in one piece. I was alive and in one piece last week, but I think I'm a little more alive today. Uh, Pretty jet-lagged, but a good trip. Um, People are making jokes already about greased turkey or too much turkey in the grease or something, but uh, what wonderful countries to visit and what incredible sights, uh, biblically and, and other, otherwise speaking. So, hope you have the opportunity sometime to visit one or both of those places. It's, uh, it's, it's truly rich. Last week, as I came back, we had Adventure Sabbath. How many of you were here last week? Three of you? Okay, terrific. (laughs) We need to work on our attendance maybe a little bit. Uh, Let's try that again. How many of you were here last week? Oh, good. At least 30 of you. That's much better. Um, You heard Pastor Haynes, Frank Haynes, talking to us from John chapter 12. It's It's a section of Scripture that normally we would think of as belonging to Palm Sunday. But he did a wonderful job of explaining to us messianic expectations in the Roman world, the way in which 
the disciples of Christ and people who followed Christ's ministry at that time really expected Jesus to come as one who would deliver them from the Roman oppression, would take them and uh, free them and reestablish the kingdom of David, reestablish the golden age of Israel. How Jesus had selected a a cult, the, 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 the cult of a donkey to ride in on, the symbol of his uh, royal position, how the palm branches that were waved and scattered on the ground in front of him were part of normal victory processions, that when a general or a king was victorious, uh, these would be waved and placed before him as he entered into a city triumphant. And we find Jesus actually making an entrance into the city from outside the cities, up on the Mount of Olives. And there is a little road that weaves down into the edge of the Kidron Valley and up into the Golden Gate. And it is through that road that Jesus would have come over the hill, down the Mount of Olives and up into the Golden Gate, entering Jerusalem as a king. Remember Pastor Haynes talking about the word Hosanna, save. Here comes the one who saves us. And they weren't thinking from sin and death. They were thinking from Rome. So Jesus comes fulfilling scripture. He's one in the line of David. He is one of the house of David. He is royalty. He is declared a victor. And part of it has to do with people who had been observing what he could do. Part of them were those who were there with him when he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. And as he had raised Lazarus from the dead, it began to dawn on people, as Pastor Haynes pointed out last week, that this was a man poised to be the one to deliver them from Rome. After a battle, he could raise the fallen from the dead. Not just the life, but because he could heal, they would be whole. Here is one who, if disease spread through the ranks of the military in one of their outings or conquests, he could heal. Here is one who, having fed thousands of people and delivered messages to them on the hills the shores of Capernaum, there on the Sea of Galilee. As one who could do that, he could provide for the physical needs of an army as well. A simple lunch, and he could break the bread and the fish and feed an army. And it's in this context that the passage we read today falls, and we'll keep reading. We're in that space between what the Christian world calls Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and actually Maundy Thursday. We're in that space between when Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphant as a king and when the Last Supper takes place, Passover. Those four or five days are critical. And these are the stories for the next two weeks that fill that gap. So turn, if you would, in your Bible to John 12.
Birka read from us in verse 20, and we're going to follow this passage all the way into 36. So let's start with what we've heard already. There were Greeks among them who went up to worship at the festival. Which festival are we talking about? Thank you. Passover. Now, it mentions Greeks. Do you think they were all Greeks from Greece? What do you think the reference is here? There were Gentiles who were faithful to Judaism who went to the festivals of Judaism. And this is the group being described. And some of them were Greeks from Greece. They go up to worship. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. We would like to see Jesus, they said. So Philip tells Andrew. Andrew and Philip then go to Jesus together and say, hey, there are some Gentiles who would like an audience. This is a request for an audience with a king. Why do I say that? Because the king has entered Jerusalem triumphantly, a victor. It is expected now. He is royalty. No one's coming to him directly. He is protected. The disciples themselves have their expectations. And Jesus makes this odd reply. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, okay? It's appropriate for a king. And then he takes a left turn. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And as we know, one seed, one kernel could produce 20, 40, 60, even 80 grains of wheat. Verse 25, those who love their lives will lose it, while those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, on the face of it, that just seems like a nonsensical statement to me. What, I love life so I get to lose it? And if I hate life, now I get to live that hated life eternally? What nonsense. What kind of God wants to snuff me because I'm having a good time in life, but wants to prolong my life forever because I'm miserable? Is that what the text means? No. Jesus is speaking in a riddle. It's a wisdom saying. What he's saying is, if you're focused and obsessed with your mortal life, that's what you're going to have. That's what he's saying. But if you want to engage in the deeper story, That's what you need to do. And engaging the deeper story means paying less attention, perhaps, to the value of this mortal life and time. And why was Jesus saying this? He was saying this, as we'll see in just a minute, because he knew what was coming next. He knew where he was headed. He knew the trauma that was ahead. He knew the path was not an easy one. He knew the path was one of pain and sacrifice. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. Two ways, Hebrew parallelism, saying the same thing. 
If you love me, keep my commandment. If you're with me, be with me. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is saying, I am the servant. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus' response was this. The voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Any Jew remembered the story of wandering in the wilderness and the infest, infestation of snakes in the camp. Any good Jew would quickly recall that a bronze staff with a serpent on it had been created and lifted up, and anyone who looked upon that who had been bitten would be healed. And the snakes were driven out from the camp. Jesus was referring to being lifted up, and in the context of Rome, being lifted up meant one thing. It meant being put on a cross. That meant that you would be the subject of ridicule and scorn. You would be humiliated for all to see. You would be despised and rejected. You would be counted among the criminals of the world. Jesus is speaking of a reality that's too difficult to fathom. I want to speak to assure you and guarantee you that if I were there, if you were there, you would not have understood. We are really hard on the disciples in this matter, I think. I would not have comprehended it. Not at the time. I don't believe you would have either. It was incomprehensible given what was being set up, given the situation. Jesus had come as a king. He was of a royal line. There was a problem. Rome was the problem. There was a history, a glorious history with Israel as when David and Solomon were kings. There was a problem. There was disease and difficulty, and Jesus could take care of it. So Jesus hears this voice, the same voice that he heard at his baptism. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. I understand Isaiah to refer to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. As Son of God, who is eternal King and co-king with him, we would refer to him sometimes as Prince, rightly so. But the Prince of this world being referred to is not Jesus. He's come to drive out the Prince of this world. You see, Adam had been created Son of God. You can read it in the genealogies of the New Testament. Adam had been created 
prince of this world. When Adam made the mistake of saying, I'm not content with that, I want to be like God himself, he lost that post and position. And the one who had tempted him took it over. That's why when we read in the book of Job that it's not Adam at the heavenly council in the universe. It's Satan at the heavenly counter, council in the universe. I know it's an imperfect picture, but I always sort of picture it as one of these uh, Star Wars type scenarios of the great councils uh, kind of floating in space with the seats and the senators and the representatives and God there on the throne. It's not a perfect image, but it's, it's good enough to get me by. You'll have to pick your own. It works for me. And there in the council representative in the spot marked earth sits not a son of God or a son of Adam, but sits Satan. Prince of the world. But no longer. Judgment has just been pronounced by the king of this world. Now is the prince cast out. It's a wonderful moment, but such a mystery as Jesus speaks it. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. How is it that a king can be victorious in death? How is it that a king can be victorious in crucifixion death? How is it that one who is meant to heal and resurrect, one who is meant to feed and lead, one who will drive the Romans out, is speaking of such strange things? Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will reign forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus told them. You're going to have the light for just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Those who walk in the dark do not know where they are going. Put your trust in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Now, I don't know about you, but that to me is not an answer. Is it to you? Here's the question. I'll repeat it. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? That's the question. Jesus gives this reply. You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Those who walk in the dark do not know where they are going. So put your trust in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. Does that sound like an answer? I'd have been a little annoyed, I'm afraid. Uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, that's a non sequitur, I would have said. I would have been wrong. As I often am. Jesus is not answering the question directly. He rarely does. But he's giving them a further insight 
into the nature of what he's about and what his kingdom is. He's giving them further clarity. I know you don't get it, but now you have light. A time is coming when you won't have that light. This is the Gospel of John, and if we go back to John chapter 1, we get an idea of what's being referred to by the writer here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as the text unfolds, we find that He is the light of the world. And the author of the Gospel of John, John the Beloved, is bringing back this theme at the end of Jesus' life and time. I'm the light that has come to you, if you'll but see it. I'm the light that's come to you, if you'll but live by it and follow it. I'm the light that's come to you, but will only be with you a little while longer. Walk in the light while you have it. My kingdom is not of this world. The text that follows fascinates me. Last part of 35. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. They weren't obviously going to get it. His energies were limited at this point. His internal struggle was already beginning. What am I to say? Father, save me from this? No. It's for this reason that I've come. He alone understood what he was to save the world from, and it wasn't Rome. He alone understood that the servant's role would be to take up the cross. And as he speaks these mysteries and speaks these words, he speaks them to a world that doesn't comprehend and doesn't receive, a world so much like our own. One of the things that you get when you travel in Israel, Turkey, Greece, places like this, what you get is how very much Our world is a Western inheritance, part of a Western culture and world that was born in Athens and Sparta and thrived in Rome. You you see in the architecture, in the law, in the politic, in the policies, in foreign relations, in road building, in architecture, you see how Athens goes to Rome, which goes to Paris, which goes to Washington, D.C. Not much has changed. We're still interested, naturally, in temporal power. We're still interested in temporal politics. We're very interested in economics. How is our dollar doing? How are our investments doing? This is not an indictment of my dear father-in-law, but he raised economics 
in conversations I had with him yesterday no less than three times. First, he wanted to tell me how the gold he had purchased some time ago had done. Then he wanted to tell me about a new company he had bought or stock of an old company he had bought. And he wanted to talk about market performance as a whole. This is on his mind. It's on lots of our minds. We have to survive. We have to make a living. We're business people. We're, we're doing what we can do. It's so much like it used to be. And Jesus is speaking in something very mysterious and hidden. And this little sentence, which I have to con confess has really escaped me, I think, most of my ministry, this word hid, Jesus goes and just hides himself from them. He's got too much to process. He's got a lot going on, and they're not getting it. And it's not time for him to try to sell it. He just needs to be away. He's been crowned king, and he needs to step away because the crown he's really going to receive is not gold and adorned with jewels, and they had those. The crown he receives is going to be one of thorns, and he sees it coming. And the people aren't ready, and the passages we read earlier today connect to that. Go to Ezekiel 37, our Old Testament passage. Hear the refrain. This is the chapter talking about dry bones, the valley of dry bones. Verse 9, the Lord says, Come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. Turn now to John 12. Read verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. It's a resurrection scenario and story. And as we proceed through Ezekiel 37, we come to today's reading, verse 24. This is the outcome of what is established or reestablished. End of verse 23. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I have given my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors live. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Can you imagine how people in Jesus' day might have read that passage? It was so clear to them. But I think as we read it now, when we say David will be king forever, we don't mean David. Nobody, no man lives forever. No man reigns forever. But the seed of David is found in whom? 
Jesus. And he reigns for ever. And Zion is the city of God. It's not just Jerusalem. He reigns forever. But his kingdom is not of this world. And the blessing that comes through Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the blessing that comes to the 12 tribes, to all of Israel, comes to those grafted in. We are an extension of that. We are spiritual Israel. And God reigns. But to the ears of those who heard this at the time, it meant something, must have meant something very different. So they say to Jesus, You're king. How is it that you're going to be lifted up and taken from us? How can this possibly be? They're thinking of Ezekiel. Jesus had raised the dead. The valley of dry bones had been called back to life. God was going to reign. David was going to sit on the throne forever. But they just didn't quite see it. The message and the meaning was hidden in plain sight. And when we go to the Psalm 110, it refers also to David's reign the way in which God's enemies are crushed and an eternal kingdom is fashioned. It's a text that seems brutal on the face of it. It's not one we would pick normally as a psalm of praise, but it was a praise to them. It's a good thing when your enemies are vanquished, yes? No? Awake? I hope today that Jesus isn't hidden from you. I hope today, as we're a week from the sermon of him entering into Jerusalem, that as Pastor Haynes said, he's here to enter into our lives and hearts. I hope that as you've opened the door to that, your spiritual vision is increased. That your expectation isn't simply that he's going to do something in an earthly fashion, a temporal fashion, but that he's done something of major importance in an eternal fashion. That he's not just a prince of Israel, physical Israel, or physical Jerusalem. He has rested the position of prince of this world from the devil and restored it to the God who gave it to mankind in the first place. He is the creator who is now the redeemer. He is the one who lifted up will draw all men unto himself. He is the suffering servant. He's the king of all, but he'll be a different kind of king. Not a king who conquers Rome by military might or feeding vast armies, raising the dead or healing the sick. He's not going to be the victorious general who throws out the armies of Rome from Palestine, as we call it now, or Israel, the territories 
of the ten tribes and the two tribes, Judah, no. Our Jesus is the one who's come to be the eternal king. And to get there, he has to pay a ransom. The ransom for you and I. The devil's ransom. And this is how it is that he's going to defeat the devil. There's, to quote C.S. Lewis, a deeper magic at work. There's a greater principle. There's a love that will supersede and conquer death. There's a love that will supersede and conquer violence. There's a love that will supersede and conquer expectations. So the king has entered. The king has come. But his place is in your heart and life. And his reign is one that's now and forevermore not just over temporal Israel. And like the Greeks, I hope we're all saying, you know, I wonder, I would like to see Jesus because that's the starting point. When you say, I would like to see Jesus, I want to play on that word for just a minute. I mean See. There are a couple of movies I cry at every single blooming time I watch them. One of them is Joy Luck Club. Any, anybody seen it? You're not a movie congregation, so three of you have seen it, of course. But that's okay. One of these days. It's a book, too, so maybe a few of you read that. Toward the end of the movie, the daughter is very upset because the mother appears to have honored her cousin, saying that the cousin has style and she has none. And in this upset, the two of them are alone in the kitchen talking, and the daughter says to the mother, you think I have no style, must be born that way. And the mother realizes how the daughter has heard her message, and she stops, and she says, I see you. And she goes on to explain the heart of the daughter in ways that are so powerful and moving. Ways that say she sees her daughter. I see you. We can see with our eyes, but not see. You know what I mean. And I would like to think that the Greeks who came to Philip and to therefore to Andrew, and ultimately to Jesus. We're not there to gawk at somebody who had resurrected the dead. We're not there to get an audience with a temporal king. I would like to believe they were there because they wanted to see. While there was light, and while the light was in the world, And that's what I want for you and for me. I hope that today we can see while there's light and while he's in the world. And so, Lord Jesus, may with vision we see.
for we would this day see Jesus. Amen.